Well, for the South Africans amongst us, you've already faced the question this morning of who to vote for. But for the rest of us, if a general election were called tomorrow, who would get your vote? Perhaps the answer is right now, no one, because of the mess that we seem to be in. Or perhaps you're a die-hard party member, fiercely loyal to the cause, out campaigning most weekends. And even if your party ended up in the wilderness for many, many years to come, you would remain completely committed to the cause. Or maybe that's just some of the people that I work with in Parliament. Despite how bad everything seems right now, a few of them, at least, remain completely committed. But you'll be relieved to know that we're not here today to talk about party politics. I do enough of that Monday to Friday. And I'm going to do my absolute best to keep the dreaded B word off the table today. But in the world that we live in, there's a far bigger question than May versus Corbyn, or the ANC versus the DA, or even Leave versus Remain. There's the question of who rules the world? Who rules the universe? And therefore, to whom will we pledge our allegiance? And you won't be surprised to hear from the, that the answer from the book of Daniel is God. And yet, it's not quite as simple as it might initially seem on the surface. The whole Bible story is an account of two cities in conflict. In the red corner, there's Jerusalem, the city of righteousness under God. And in the blue corner, Babylon, the city of sin under false gods. Whilst both cities are real physical places, they also carry a far bigger symbolic meaning in the Bible. Jerusalem refers to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the, the heavenly city that is not yet here, but is where our citizenship as Christian lies. And in contrast, Babylon is the city where we physically live now, which stands in opposition to God until the new Jerusalem comes. As Christians, we are exiles, living, as 1 Peter says, as aliens and strangers in Babylon, or should I say London, and whilst we live in Babylon, we actually belong to Jerusalem, and we will one day return home. So the question to think about as we look at Daniel chapter 1 is to whom are you loyal as you live in Babylonian London? Whose side are you really on? And are you willing to stand up and be counted? Let's dive into Daniel chapter 1, and our first point is God rules despite appearances, verses 1 and 2. So our tale begins at a time of crisis. It's 605 BC, the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, and the city of Jerusalem is under siege by the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar, leader of Babylon, the superpower of the age. As part of this, the best and the brightest of Jerusalem's men are carried off to Babylon, and to add injury to insult, God's temple is ransacked and its treasures carried off for safekeeping at the Babylonian Museum, the treasure house of their pagan gods. On the surface, this looks like a devastating blow, not only for God's people, but for the nation of Israel itself. 
a people who were supposed to be a great nation, living in their own land under God's rule and blessing, seem completely humiliated. In the head-to-head between God and Nebuchadnezzar, it appears to all intents and purposes that God has lost. You can imagine the newspaper headlines the next day. Time magazine, Babylon. Is God dead? Babylonian Times, our gods are bigger than yours. Babylonian Daily Express, where is their God now? And for us living in London, a city where Christians are in the minority and increasingly feeling marginalized, we too might be tempted to believe that the end of Christianity is near. And yet, as we read on in Daniel, things were not quite as they seemed. In verse two, we see that it was God himself who delivered Jehoiakim, along with some of the temple articles, over. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar's victory was not despite God, but because of God. Despite appearances, God continued to rule, even when things looked and felt hopeless. And what's more, God's actions here were entirely in line with his promises. So if you were at CCE a few years back when we did the Bible overview, you will remember that God promised in Deuteronomy 28 to bless his people abundantly if they kept his promises, but also to bring curses if they disobeyed. In listing the curses, he warned them that their disobedience would lead to them being exiled. And now God is actioning exactly that. The exile happens because God is in control, not because he isn't. I don't know about you, but I can find it quite easy to trust that God is in control when things are going really well, when work is good, my family are well, we've just had a glorious sunny bank holiday Easter weekend. But it can be harder to trust when things aren't going to plan, when work is a struggle, when the man of my dreams hasn't whisked me off my feet, when the longing for children remains, or our children are struggling or constantly playing up. Similarly, it can be hard to know what God is doing when our country and world feel in crisis, or bad things like the attacks in Sri Lanka happen. But God isn't just ruling when things appear rosy. He's in charge over all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as much as we find it hard to understand, he's working all these things for his sovereign purposes. So our second point, verse three to seven, living in London will bring pressure to compromise. So having carried off Israel's finest young men, the future leaders, the most gifted of their generation are put onto a fast track program into the king's service which involves three years of intense training at King's College, Babylon. So what was King Nebuchadnezzar hoping to achieve through this? Well, this was certainly more than just a talent-spotting exercise. This was a clever attempt to mould their worldview, shape their identity, and win their emotional loyalty from a young age. As they were taught the language and literature of the Babylonians, verse 4, they would have had been having their minds and worldview moulded to the cultural values of the city simply by being surrounded by them. Values not dissimilar to London values, 
such as relativism. There's no one truth. Moral relativism. All lifestyle choices are equally valid. And polytheism. We worship many different gods. These would have underpinned everything that they were being exposed to. And what's very clear is that biblical wisdom would have been decidedly absent. Similarly, living in London, we should be naive to think that the movies we watch, the news reports and books that we read, the music we listen to, the Instagram and Twitter feeds that we're looking at, won't affect us. None are neutral and all convey a cultural message. Have you seen the film The Greatest Shaman? People watched it. That's one of my all-time favourite movies. Um, if there was any movie that I wish I could have been in it, it's, been, it's The Greatest Shaman. Um, and as I was singing along to uh, this, this week at top volume to This Is Me, it struck me just how powerful a message is being communicated about identity. For we are glorious, I make no apologies, this is me. And whilst in one sense this is absolutely true, we are made in the image of God, and therefore we are glorious. But in another sense, we are not glorious in and of ourselves. The Bible tells us that outside of Christ, we are unrighteous, unworthy, and awful short of God's glory. So we need to repent, and there is plenty to apologize to God and others for. Like Daniel, we need to allow the Bible to shape how we take in the things of the world, not the other way around. It's worth calculating how much time you spend reading, watching, looking at and listening to the things of the world compared to how long you spend in God's word each day. I found this exercise slightly sobering. And who gets more of you in the morning? Is it John Humphreys or Jesus, Chris Evans or Christ, the Metro, Instagram, fill in the blank, or God the Father, which is having more impact on you. Similarly, if you're a mum, how much time are you investing in shaping the worldview of your kids, or are you allowing society to form it for them? Back in Babylon, the exiles were put under further pressure to conform, as they were made to learn a new language, verse 4, adapt a new diet, verse 5, and accept new names, verse 7. The name change was particularly striking, as it aimed to shape them by giving them a whole new identity, seeking to erase any memory of the Lord they had once served. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, God has been gracious. Mishael, none is like God. And Azariah, God has helped, were instead all given names of Babylonian gods Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And similarly, in London today, the world is constantly trying to wipe God from the picture or to remould him into a God that is all love and no judgment. As Christians, our true identity is in Christ. We're his adopted children, fully forgiven and fully loved. Yet the world is constantly telling us that we're defined by what we do, how we look, by how successful or popular we are, or we're, whether we're married, have kids, or own a house. Which voice are we listening to? And Nebuchadnezzar's brainwashing strategy wasn't all negative. 
He worked hard to secure their emotional loyalty by creating such hard-to-resist opportunities and privileges that assimilation came easily. <coughs> For many of the young exiles, the comfortable living arrangements, fine dining experiences, opportunity of a glittering career, exposure to powerful and interesting people, and the stimulation and excitement on offer were just far too attractive to resist. And living in London, a city of wealth and opportunity, it's very easy for us to be lured in too. Very easily, we can find our lifestyles looking all too similar to our non-Christian friends. Rather like a chameleon, we just blend in. And because of it, we need to resolve to take a stand. So our third point, resolve to take a stand, verse 8 to 16. So knowing the dangers of assimilation and the pressure to conform, and Daniel was very clear that he needed a strategy to resist. So verse 8, Daniel resolved to defile himself, or not to defile himself even, with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And notice when he did it. It's right from day one. He wasn't going to allow himself to just drift into compromise or to risk his allegiance to the one true God. But before we look at what Daniel said no to, it's worth pausing for a moment just to think what he said yes to. He said yes to a name change, yes to a pagan education, yes to a political career, and even yes to working for someone who was actively opposed to God. Because he knew God ruled, he was willing to actively engage in the world and seek to be a positive influence on it. And it's a good thing for us to care about the economy, the environment, to want our communities and schools to flourish. God cares. Nothing is outside of his realm of concern. It's also worth noting that Daniel didn't retreat into some Christian ghetto or holy huddle, which might be a danger for some of us. How easy it would be, especially on a day like this, to just hang out with Christians because it's comfortable. But whilst God doesn't expect us to say no to everything, he does expect us to live distinctively and for it to be very clear where our true allegiance lies. So let's get back to Daniel's decision to not defile himself with the royal food and wine. And what was this about? It's probably not that it was deemed unclean under Jewish food laws, because the wine wouldn't have been unclean. It's also probably not because it had been sacrificed to pagan gods, as otherwise he would have had to avoid the vegetables too. And much as some of our vegetarians at church might like it to be, it's probably not that he was an early advocate of going veggie. In one sense, it was an arbitrary line. But in another sense, it was a critical juncture for Daniel. He knew that if he were to eat from the king's table, he was effectively getting into bed with the king. He knew that if he didn't draw the line here, he was effectively giving himself to the king and his values. He knew he needed to align himself with God and make his loyalty publicly known before it was too late. And this wouldn't have been without risk. 
There's no doubt it required immense courage. He was a young man in a foreign country who was basically a nobody, who was daring to question the king's orders. So what does this mean for us? Well, we also need to take a stand by drawing a line, even if it feels hard to do. Whilst where we draw the line itself will vary amongst us, the need to make our loyalty to God known by drawing a line is essential. On the work front, it might mean saying that we can't work late on a Tuesday because of home group. Or it might be willing to turn down a promotion or a job offer because we know that it would have to be all in. It might mean removing ourselves from the chat or actively trying to make it more positive when the gossiping grumbling start at the school gate or down the pub. It may be choosing not to drink at certain social engagements because we know how we think and act after a few drinks. Or it might be saying no to that lunch with that nice non-Christian guy because we know we'll be tempted to flirt, invest emotionally or just enjoy the attention. Even if it appears harmless, we know deep down that it's going to start a heart tussle for our affections, God versus our desire for a relationship. It may be, fill in the dots, I can't do or I believe X, Y, Z because I'm a Christian. The important thing is less where we take the stand, but more that we do need to stand. Daniel knew he was under pressure and needed to make it obvious he wasn't a Babylonian, but belonged to God. We are similarly under pressure to fit in with London's liberal, secular values. And we need to make it clear we're Christians living for a different home. It's worth asking yourselves, would your friends, neighbours, family or colleagues see anything different about you and what you're living for from them? Would they know that you believe that God rules? And is there any area in your life where you've given in to the pressure to compromise and need to redraw a line? If Daniel hadn't drawn the line here on a fairly small matter, it's highly unlikely he would have done it later on in his life when the decision was so much darker. Either stop praying to God or face death in a lion's den. I think it's the same for us. If we won't take a stand on the small things, we're fooling ourselves if we believe we won't compromise later when a tougher choice comes to <coughs> And Daniel teaches us something about how to take the sound too. He didn't rush in like a bull in a china shop, but instead he politely asked the officials to make allowances for his conscience, verse 8. And when this was rejected, rather than giving up, he respectfully suggested a reasonable adjustment in verse 11, trusting God with the outcome. And it's the same for us. We must be bold in speaking up, but also gracious in how we do it. And the thing that enables us to do that is the gospel. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter tells us, Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. 
We don't need to fear because Christ is totally in control of whatever response we get. But we do need to ensure that any offence we might cause comes from the gospel itself, rather than our approach, arrogant or superior tone, or unwise choice of words. Let's speak up boldly, but gently. So lastly, God can be trusted to bless his people, 17 to 21. Having taken a stand for God, God blessed Daniel and his friends, giving them knowledge and understanding, providing Daniel understanding of visions and dreams, and by enabling Daniel and his friends to outperform and be 10 times better than all the other magicians and enchanters in the kingdom. God's handiwork is over everything that happens. And it's worth noting the final sentence in verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, outliving the whole dynasty. What these verses aren't promising is that if we honour God, we'll be blessed with earthly success here and now, sadly. We only need to recall our Lord Jesus, the most distinctive man who ever lived, who was despised and rejected, yet still resolved to stand by going to the cross and dying for us as a common criminal. But just like with Daniel and his friends, because God is in control of the situation he's put us in, he can and will use our efforts to live for him. No matter how small they may seem to us, he can work through us to draw others to him and to help make the world a better place. And whilst we can have some influence now, we need to remember that the best is yet to come. What these verses provide is a picture of a greater reality. If we pledge our allegiance to the Lord Jesus and stand for him, we will ultimately be blessed as we get to rule with King Jesus in the new Jerusalem. If we stand with the Lord Jesus now, we will one day rule with him. So living in London as a Christian, let's remember it's a tale of two cities. Whilst we live in Babylonian London now, a city dominated by false gods and idols that seek our assimilation, this city is not and should never become our home. We are aliens and strangers here, just passing through. Our citizenship is of a far greater heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, a city where we will dwell with God forever. And whilst living in London, it can sometimes feel that God is no longer in charge, the reality is very different. Just like in Babylon at the time of Daniel, God is always ruling despite appearances. God remains in charge, not only when things are good, but even if our hopes and dreams don't work out, if bad things happen, or if disaster strikes, God is working through and in all things to bring about his plans. And finally, let's remember that taking a stand for God is worth it. Because God really does rule, he deserves our absolute loyalty. Because he's in charge, we should pledge our total allegiance to him, even if it's costly knowing that one day we will rule with King Jesus over all things. Let's not be chameleons just blending in. Let's not retreat into some holy huddle. 
Let's be in the world, but not of the world. Let's live distinctively as exiles here in Babylonian London, getting stuck in, seeking to do good, always seeking to point people to Christ, but remembering we are not yet home. Let's turn and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are ruling, both when things are good, but even when things don't work out and bad things happen. Give all of us a deep confidence that you are in control and working out your plans both for your glory and the good of your people. Please, Lord, help us to be undivided in our loyalty and allegiance to you and make us more willing to stand and be counted as Christians. For each of us here, help us to work out what this looks like and where we may need to draw the line. Please help us not to be chameleons or to retreat into a holy huddle, but to engage in the world as your faithful servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Kate. Uh, now that I know you're such a fan,